0: Hey, welcome to Voicing Relationships, a podcast produced by the House of Beautiful Business in collaboration with Salesforce, two companies dedicated to putting human beings at the center of business. To make this podcast, we spoke to authors, AI ethicists, social designers, and relationship facilitators, among others. And the way we did it was a little unusual. We collected perspectives through a series of asynchronous voice messages. We asked our guests questions about the impact each of us as individuals can have in the world and the small ways we can come together to shape big change. And while out walking their dog, or driving back to the city after a weekend away, they answered. What follows is a series of asynchronous conversations that go deep into relationships. I'm Madeline Davis, and I tell stories about the transformative power of design and human connection for Salesforce. This is episode two of Voicing Relationships, Quantum Change Through Small Social Actions.
1: Any change, any meaningful change that happens on an individual level can spill outward. And there will not be any collective liberation without changes at the individual level. So so it's really important to know that every small steps that we're making as people, that we're making in our private lives, that we're changing ourselves, we can uh, impact change on a bigger level.
0: The voice you just heard was that of Dr. Amelia Roig, the founder and executive director of the Center for Intersectional Justice. A Berlin based organization dedicated to making anti discrimination and equality policy more inclusive. She is also a faculty member in the social justice program at DePaul University of Chicago. But as you might have guessed from her voice, she's French and works all over the world, including collaborating with groups like the International Labour Organization in Kenya, Tanzania, and Cambodia. Before I spoke with Amelia, I'd been thinking about quantum physics, specifically the idea that at the atomic level, particles exist in a superposition state of potential. This quantum superposition is kind of mysterious. Multiple possibilities for each particle exist at the same time, and only once the particles are observed, do they collapse into the reality that we actually see. So active observation changes the thing we are observing, making this interaction between observer and observed the smallest unit of change. Might social change also behave according to the laws of quantum physics? What if we pay attention to the smallest particles of potential for that change? The habits of our own minds, the interactions of our day to day, Maybe our attention to the quantum realm of our own selves and lives can unlock change on a much broader scale. It might be a place to start at least. With this kind of thinking, it seems we're in the territory where individual psychology and community organizing meet. That's something Alex Evans, co-founder of the Collective Psychology Project, knows a lot about. The stated mission of the Collective Psychology Project is to heal political divides. And as you can imagine, since their founding in 2018, they've had a lot to talk about. In 2021, they changed their name to Larger Us, which reflects their core conviction that part of our problem as a society and as political actors is that our sense of who we are is too small. Evans is not qualified to speak about quantum theory, but he is more than qualified to speak about how people can be persuaded to transcend social and ideological boundaries in order to enact real change, the kind of change you can feel. In a book that he published just before founding Larger Us, he writes that just presenting evidence and arguments isn't enough if you wanna transcend political polarization, for instance, or combat climate change. You need deep stories, not arguments. You need people to connect.
2: In our work at Larger Us, we're really interested in the role of small groups of say kind of 10 or 15 people in bringing about social change. Um, The reason for that is really twofold. One is that just looking around at movements that have changed the world, so many of the really transformational ones are rooted in these small groups. So you think of something like the school strikes or 350.org, which has been hugely influential on climate change. Both of them rooted in these small groups of people who see each other regularly. And groups this size are really effective at kind of building loyalty and getting people to show up week after week, month after month. Um, And it's the same when you look at lots of historical examples. So if you look, for example, at the civil rights struggle in the United States in the 50s and 60s, oftentimes that was rooted in religious congregations, in churches. And there again, you had these kind of small groups that really appeal to our, you know, the way our brains are wired for kind of primary group loyalty, as sociologists would call it. But the other thing that interests us at Larger Us, working as we do at the interface of politics and psychology, um, of state of mind and state of world, is that actually small groups are also amazingly effective platforms for doing inner work, for bringing about personal and psychological transformation. So you look at something like Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, it's transformed millions of people's lives. And the reason for that is because people keep showing up to these small groups where they feel held, they can hold each other to account. There's that loyalty that keeps them turning up for each other. And it's just an incredibly powerful driver of change. And so one of the things we're most curious about is, well, what if we had small groups that that were doing both inner and outer work together rather than just doing that work of personal transformation or just doing that work of activism and system change? What if we had small groups that were doing both?
0: And as soon as we're talking about small groups, people's buttons can get pushed. There are a lot of reasons why small groups are great. They can be intimate, cozy, safe spaces where people feel seen, recognized, and empowered to take action. They can also be suffocating spaces where groupthink prevails and people can feel ignored, unheard, even ostracized if they don't conform. There's a duality that comes with small groups, a narrowness that can both stifle and motivate creative problem solving. Karen O'Brien is a professor at the University of Oslo and an expert on getting people from diverse fields to come together, collaborate and imagine new ways of responding to climate change. She also thinks about social change and from a quantum angle. In 2020, she gave a talk on the subject. So many people today feel hopeless, despondent, she began. They feel they do not matter. I know I often feel this way, especially when I read the news or the latest research on the state of the planet, she confessed. But maybe we are missing something. What if we transcend the individualistic reductionist paradigm that currently influences our understandings of social change? And what if we open up to the possibility that we are all part of one entangled system and live in a world of potentiality? By potentiality, I mean that in every moment we have the possibility to disrupt cultures and systems and generate new ones based on equity, integrity, and oneness. I asked her the question that had started me on this path in the first place. Where to begin? She had some answers. I think once we start to become aware and start to question like what is at stake for me, but also for others, we start to see that, um, you know, like what can, you start to ask different questions and what can you do about it? And and to me, you know, the, the idea that we matter, that you matter, that I matter, that, um, that we are actually creating the, um, the conditions in every moment that are going to be influencing um, others and future generations and other species, I think is a really, it's a perspective change that, um, that, that can be very powerful for making people aware that they can actually drive positive change. And we don't just have to react to the negative changes of climate change right now. We don't just have to react. We can create the conditions for positive change instead of only avoiding the worst case scenarios. That idea is shared by Heather Fleming, a social entrepreneur and co-founder of Change Labs, a nonprofit organization dedicated to economic empowerment within Native American communities. Together with her partner, Jessica Hugo, she fosters native owned small businesses on the Navajo and Hopi nations, which for a long time have been seen as areas of entrepreneurial stagnancy for a whole variety of reasons. Lack of infrastructure, limited small business financing, inadequate support networks, and a history of exclusion from national and global economies. Heather and Jessica sought to change all of that and empower Native-owned small businesses, ideally moving Native cultures overall towards greater economic prosperity and sustainability.
3: When I went to college, I studied design, and my intent was To come home to the reservation and work. (laughs) One of my cousins um, when I was in high school was very influential on me in that way. She was a civil engineer and she was building all these uh, wells around the reservation for families and I just thought it was so cool what she was doing and I, I wanted to do something like that. But when I graduated from college I Realized that there wasn't really any jobs back on the reservation for me to go back to And I ended up staying in uh, the Bay Area for a long time Because there was jobs there and they were related to what I had studied in school um, But the good thing about that was I kind of got an education or consumed by um, The way Silicon Valley works, the the pluses and the minuses On the plus side, there's this hyper-entrepreneurial mindset, there's a huge tolerance for risk, in fact risk is rewarded, things move very quickly, everyone's just super entrepreneurial and that kind of rubbed off on me. Um, And I always wondered when I would go home to the reservation, you know, why is it (laughs) that here everything is kind of the opposite, everything goes so slowly, risk is definitely not rewarded and you don't see very much entrepreneurial activity. Um, so in the meantime, I, when I was in San Francisco, I had created a different company up there that I co-founded called Catapult Design, and um, through that job I was traveling around the world, primarily East Africa and India, and helping clients develop new products and services for otherwise overlooked or marginalized customers usually what they call base of the pyramid customers so people living on less than five to two dollars a day and the challenges that I saw in India and parts of Africa um, were really similar to the social challenges that we have back home in the Navajo Nation but in those places you have these entrepreneurial ecosystems that support innovation, that support new technology initiatives, and there was billions of dollars going into social ventures and social enterprise in these places. And again, I thought, why isn't this happening back home on Navajo? We have the same constraints, we have the same social challenges, and yet you don't see nearly this much investment in new ideas or or anything really. Um, And I became more interested in this issue and started talking to friends and colleagues back home on Navajo, or the Navajo diaspora, about it, and I began to learn a few things, and but ultimately what tips me over to my work now is I met my co-founder, her name is Jessica Stego, and she's been working, she's also Navajo, she's been working with Navajo small businesses almost her entire career, you know, two decades of experience, and through her and our mutual friend Al Henderson and Natasha Hale, I kind of got a very quick education on why there appear to be no businesses or entrepreneurs on Navajo. And I learned about some of the cultural factors, the policy factors, um, the historical factors and the way that Native lands were set up in the original treaties. And I discovered that it's a very complex very layered and systemic challenge that, frankly, no one was tackling. Arguably, Jessica was, but um, she didn't have a huge system of support behind her. And um, I also could see what I brought to the table to that relationship in the sense that I was very invigorated and inspired by all these social enterprise models that I'd witnessed around the globe. And I could see what they were doing for people who were impoverished. I could see, you know, people suddenly have access to water, they have access to electricity in their homes, they're able to pay bills over their phone. Um, (laughs) Life, in some regards, was easier in those places than it was on Navajo. Um, So I I kind of brought that excitement for cross-pollination and my experience with social enterprise and possibility. And I combined that with with Jessica's intimate knowledge of the business regulatory environment, the policy environment, um, the access to financial capital challenges on Navajo. And together, we created Change
0: Labs. Their goal is ambitious to invest in the Navajo Nation the same way that international charities have invested in other impoverished parts of the world for decades.
3: And um, we knew that we or we had previously mapped out the entrepreneurial ecosystem challenges on Navajo. And um, long story short, it was very weak and we were able to identify you know, in what ways it was weak and what needed to be done in order to, improve the entire ecosystem all at once and the challenge to all this work I mean I mentioned that it's complex it's systemic it's layered is that there's not any one thing that a single organization needs to do there are many different things that need to be done in parallel and um, all the levers of change in the entrepreneurial ecosystem need to be moved up incrementally at the same time so when we were designing change labs we were identifying programs that could tackle one or more levers of the ecosystem simultaneously. So business incubation is about building peer networks, but it's also about um, creating a community of entrepreneurs that can drive policy change. It's about creating uh, physical infrastructure for those businesses so that they can start up and grow And similarly, our our micro-lending program is not only about access to financial capital, but it's equally paired with um, increasing human capital through education, financial education, wealth literacy.
0: One of the smallest, but most significant ways that change begins is through language. The way we think about a new idea starts with the words we use to frame it. When we don't have the words for those ideas, the entire concept can seem unnavigable, even alien.
4: The first and foremost when it comes to cultural factors fundamentally is, is language. You know, when we talk about business, there's a whole lexicon that goes along with it. Um, you know, everything that has to do with financial reports, profit and loss, balance sheets, um, with loans, equity loans, um, uh, equity financing versus debt financing. Uh, business plan marketing plan there's like there's this whole set of words that we use in the business community but in indigenous languages we don't have words to describe an entrepreneur there's no concept there's no existing words um, that we can leverage and so whenever whenever we have whenever we talk about business we have to switch to english and to me that's very significant it automatically makes business and entrepreneurship feel like an other, you know, something that is not inherent to indigenous values or indigenous culture. And that is, I don't want to say problematic is probably too severe, but it contributes to this, this um, cultural mismatch.
0: Mismatches can happen within cultures as well. One of the biggest changes of the past year and a half has occurred in widespread attitudes about policing, especially in regard to vast discrepancies that exist between different communities in their experiences with police. Who are the police here to protect? Who might need to be protected from them? How can we create a dialogue between people who take opposing views about what needs to be changed? Marion von Hederen and Arnold Ruttenboer co-authored a book called From the Police with Love, a provocative title in almost any context, but especially so when published in the wake of mounting anger toward unjust, abusive, even murderous police practices around the world. The book chronicles an experiment they conducted in which they paired Dutch police officers with what they called social artists or social designers in the hopes of easing tensions in communities and arriving at more effective policing, which in their view, is a matter of alleviating the conditions that drive citizens to do things that wind up with the police getting called in the first place. What if, they wondered, what was needed wasn't bigger budgets, but more creativity? We are on a transformational journey to create positive social impact by turning up the volume of creativity, humanness, and love they write we speak to the heart in open consciousness we look for other more unexpected people oriented and creative ways ways that make growth and creation possible of people relationship ideas and systems extraordinary times call for extraordinary perspectives the book describes the first small steps in creating space within the police for developing new action perspectives with wider repertoire and new moral foundations more human social and creative what do those small steps look or sound like their appendix in the book gives some ideas they compiled a glossary and called it the social designers repertoire
4: i'm learning The objective of social design is to affect change. People often think that coming up with a good idea or new perspective is enough to affect change. But change only
0: takes place when old behaviors are unlearned as well. One of my favorite items in their glossary is the idea of the inexplicable and how, in the realm of change and mechanisms for social change, not everything can be explained.
4: Inexplicable. In a social design, not everything can be explained. It often takes weeks or months before you realize how the pieces of the puzzle around the issue should be led. It is important to embrace the inexplicability of issues and insights
0: and not see this as an obstacle to ferreting things out. Here's Alex Evans again.
2: Where I think this gets really interesting and where we get into newer ground is whether those responsibilities extend towards the psychological domain, for example, towards managing our mental and emotional state. Let me explain a bit what I mean by this. All of us, of course, understand the ways in which the state of the world affects our states of mind. If, for example, we're living in poverty or extreme inequality, or through climate breakdown or a pandemic like COVID, Of course, all of these things affect our state of mind. They may make us feel anxious or depressed or threatened or lonely. But what's important is that the converse is true too, that our individual states of mind affect the state of the world because they affect how we act as citizens. So if, for example, I feel anxious and that takes me into what psychologists call fight-flight-freeze mode, then there's lots of data to show that that will also make me less empathetic, more prone to extremist views more prone to seeing the world in a kind of them-and-us way, where I'm in favour of some in-group that I perceive myself to be part of and blame everything else on some out-group that I other. Now, this is not an abstract concern. If you look at, for example, what Cambridge Analytica tried to do in 2016, both in the US election and in the Brexit referendum, it was in effect to try and weaponize our own anxieties against us. To use a mashup of psychological profiling on one hand and social media micro targeting on the other to press our buttons with a very high degree of precision just when it mattered most during an election to try and persuade us to see the world in them and us terms. Or to take another example, when we worry about the content algorithms that are used by social media giants like Facebook, the whole issue there is that. Oftentimes what Facebook will push at us in our newsfeed is content that scares us or that outrages us because it's a very effective way of monetizing our attention. But it's also a really bad thing from the point of view of social cohesion and political polarization. Now the hopeful thing in all of this is that there's actually a lot that each of us can do to learn to manage our mental and emotional states to become more resilient to this kind of trolling. So for example, we can learn to be more empathetic and be better at appreciating other people's points of view and appreciating how they may be feeling emotionally. We can also learn to be better at responding to perceived threats. We can train ourselves to be able to make conscious choices about how to respond to something we see as threatening rather than our amygdala doing it for us on autopilot and taking us straight into the defensive crouch of fight-flight-freeze mode. But where this gets really interesting, and back to your question, is that this is stuff that doesn't just matter for our individual well-being and our individual mental health. It also matters for the health of our societies and of our democracies. And I would definitely argue that we do have duties and responsibilities as citizens to invest in building up these psychological capabilities that will make us feel better and that will be good. For our societies and our ability of course to tackle shared challenges things like climate change which fundamentally require us to see ourselves as part of a much larger us but i think that nevertheless this is going to be an interesting uh, debate to unpack and there will need to be a debate about it because for a long time we've thought that there's this rigid divide between our private inner worlds on one hand and then the shared outer world of kind of society and politics on the other And as we realise all of the ways in which that border turns out to be much more porous, much more permeable than we perhaps realised, a whole lot of interesting new questions are going to arise. And I think this is one of them.
0: Here's Amelia Roig again on the need for heightening our spiritual consciousness. And that's a a spiritual
1: lesson. That's something that we learn through spirituality, to connect with the non-material realm and to uh, understand our worth as at the same time, completely related to all other human beings. So it it allows us to connect and to create this connection, um, to create this uh, commonality with other um, living beings and, and the universe as a whole. And on the other hand, it also helps us to, um, to understand that we are uniquely worthy, that all of us um, are necessary in this world. As soon as we are entering this world, we are necessary, we are worthy um, and uh, and it's not dependent on who we are, it's not dependent on, um, you know, what we, or, or on our performance and, and also not on uh, our physical attributes. And so I would say that as a spiritual practice, there's a lot of introspection that can work, and meditation, and being in the here and now, and and, and really trying to, yeah, connect with love as a as a transformative and as a as a living force, so to say. And uh, for some people, meditation is going to be really difficult. For others, it's going to be easier. And there are many ways to meditate. You know, I'm a very hyperactive person. So sitting and meditating is difficult for me. But And I'm not really good at it, I have to say. But uh, I'm doing it every day. I'm waking up every day 15 minutes before my actual uh, wake time so that I can sit down and, you know, say a prayer and connect in that sense and connect with my body, with my breath, and knowing that my breath is what also connects me with um, billions of living beings that we all breathe, you know, and at some point we know that we are part of a whole. And um, yeah, and if more of us would do this, if more of us would also heal, you know, like spiritual healing is something that the world needs more of for sure.
0: Here's Heather Fleming again.
4: The central theme to Navajo philosophy is hojo. And hojo in English translates roughly to balance and harmony. So a saying in Navajo is to, is to um, it's like to achieve hojo, to, to walk in hojo, to walk in beauty, to be balanced, to find harmony. And this central theme of our cultural philosophy is counter to a lot of the way that we think about business in the United States. So I think Silicon Valley is a great example. Silicon Valley is technology obsession and it's all about unicorns, growth for growth's sake, growth outside of sustainable boundaries. Um, no businesses in Silicon Valley or in the U.S. in general, they're not necessarily evaluated by by um, All of the factors that one would consider when we're talking about a balanced life. Harmony. Harmony with the environment. Harmony with yourself. Harmony with your community. It's all about financials. It's all about the bottom line. And on Navajo, you know, living outside your means, that imbalance is a negative thing. And so when we think about entrepreneurs and business owners, when we survey people about their perceptions, it's usually, you know, greedy People who want to sit on piles of money, people who are imbalanced, and <laughs> and that presents a problem. If if you're a native entrepreneur, you might automatically be um, ostracized. Is too severe, but criticized or or um, what's that word when sign suspicious? Like people look at you suspiciously, um, and. <sighs> This is why I think it's so important that we create our own narratives. I'm getting so sick of that phrase, but it really fits here. Create our own narratives for native entrepreneurship. We don't have to subscribe to the Silicon Valley model or even the American model of entrepreneurship. There's definitely room for change and for innovation there. And arguably, if we can... Establish that new model in indigenous communities. I think the rest of the U.S. and developed nations would benefit because you know we're all living outside our means with our air conditioners running full blast, watering our grass, driving our polluting cars, and I'm naming all environmental factors. But I mean, we have a serious problem with sustainable growth in our own economy, and I feel like we could all benefit from a little bit of. Not just in our personal lives but in the business world as well.
0: And Karen O'Brien. I think quantum social change recognizes that everyone matters and has the capacity to shift systems and culture cultures. And um it's really about recognizing um people's agency and the capacity um to matter as inherent and not something that's just bestowed or given to someone. So as you said, um, you know we need, qu- we need social change that are powered by quanta, many people. And when we really start to take in that everyone matters, it can unleash a really immense sense of energy for social change. So quantum change might start with an individual, but it's not carried out by individuals. It's carried out in relationships, by communities, and through connections. Because with connection comes momentum. And just remembering that might be the best place to start.